from VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. What's up, everybody? How's everybody feeling? Hey, guys. You know, Good. hanging in, getting through, getting in through in summer one, one sunny day at a time. Not too bad. I love summer. It's the we just... Besides it's the literally fact that, sweltering hot, well, so, okay? Well, so I was saying, I think we're in the period right now where it's like, you know, crotch weather. You know, like, it just <laughs> oh. feels like you're inside someone's crotch. Oh it's like God. so bad. It's just like, this is the time, right? Like, I apologize if anyone's offended by that, but you all like, I'm trying to give like what it feels like. It's just gross. There, like, there this is, is no, we, we, there's no, do you not have, you don't have like that in being Seattle. in a East coast city when it's hot and humid and everything smells like trash and crotch, crotch. Yeah. <laughs> it's bad man well, but it's funny because i think we do- we dodged the bullet for a pretty long time mm-hmm. and now we're there yeah you can't now really there. you can you can't ever truly avoid it you can't escape it no no sometimes it hits by the fourth of july and we, we dodged that we got mm-hmm. through it we're like yeah here we go and now it's like everything feels kind of wet even in the studio right now it feels kind of wet <laughs> And you're just like like damp, you know. Yeah. And you're just like, ugh, humidity sucks, man. Why does it exist? <laughs> well, you know where it's not humid is Seattle, Washington. Yep. So True. Good reason to I live like here. I like Seattle weather. Do you? I do. Like even it. the raining. Even the raininess. Yeah, I think it's okay. The North America's rainforest. Yeah. Hey, that's true, right, Zach? There's there, is a, a, there, like, there is a rainforest here. It's not in Seattle, to be fair. But close, but close, but close, <laughs> it's right? It's yeah. True. Come on, we we can't forget. They're not all tropical, guys. It rains more <laughs> per year in uh, in New York than it does in Seattle. Just rains differently. Yeah, go. we're gonna get those really crazy summer thunderstorms. It's not the rain that kills people here, really. It's the gray. It's just the persistent it's the gray. gray. For six <laughs> I thought you were gonna say it was the flannel. Uh, I think flannel's uh, flannel's gone gone worldwide these days. So you know, it's hard to flannel we'll talk about that later anyways so zach what have you been up to man what have you been drinking uh a few things so um i got the chance to do an, a pretty big another pretty big in-person tasting not that long ago uh, earlier this week i guess uh which was fun for me uh as mentioned last time i did one of these it's like uh kind of like um i remember it and yet it's always like it still feels a little weird like spit buckets are weird we we're outside so it wasn't too bad but i was like huh you know okay um so lots of interesting wines there was uh all from washington it was a, a washington wine event uh there was a new sparkling wine producer called teridis that i tried a couple wines from that were interesting um but honestly the most interesting thing i had over the last week and i actually sent you guys a picture of this because uh, i mm-hmm. thought you would be intrigued by it was a pineapple amaro from a, a a distillery called Heirloom, which is actually based in Minnesota in Minneapolis, well known mm. for its pineapples, of course. <laughs> but it was really interesting. It was sort of, you know, it was definitely pineapple-y. There was definitely a kind of a tropical note to go along with more of the kind mm. of spice and herbaceous kind of note that you associate with Amaro. I'm I drank some of it kind of neat with uh, actually I was having like an afternoon coffee at the place I was at. They were like, I was asking, I was like, you know, I want to have something to drink with this. Because of course I did, and uh, that was their, or that was one of the things that the bartender suggested, and so I had never tried it and tried it, and I thought it went pretty well in that context. But you it, had it locally in Seattle, yes, yes. I was okay. not just traveling to Minneapolis. I'm sorry to say, okay. um, but no, it was. It, yeah, I don't, I don't know much about it. I didn't really do a lot of research, but it was definitely interesting. And they make apparently a, a few different uh, of these kind of tropical fruit amari, and then also some camp cocktails. So um, if anyone from heirloom is out there you know we'd probably be interested in trying those things you can get a hold of yeah. us podcast at vinebear.com mm-hmm. 
I want to try the Samara. I'm very curious about the Samara. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I, I bet you could find it somewhere in New York. I've got Tim on the on the case. He seemed intrigued, so. Nice. I feel like pineapple is having a moment right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. I just I feel like I see it in in lots of drinks. Yeah, I think I think definitely more this year in summer drinks than I'd seen in the past. Mm-hmm. Like more, yeah, tropical sort of flavors are having a moment. Yeah. yeah. If you will. Sure. Banana. <sighs> mango. <laughs> Love it. I think they all are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool, Zach. Yeah, that's that really interesting. Great. Yeah, I want to try that. Me too. Yeah. Joanna? You, Joanna? Yeah, so I think the most interesting thing I had this past week, um, Evan and I went to a local restaurant called Fausto. They have a pretty good cocktail program, too. I think it's they're known for their wines, really. But, they are. But, um, yeah. Shout we, out to Joe. Shout out What's to up, Joe? Joe? <laughs> um. We had the their Vesper, which is um, they do an olive oil washed gin. Oh, cool! In their Vesper with uh, vodka and coqui americano and, and lemon, and then I had their Osti lemonade, also coqui americano, green tea, basil and lemon. Mm-hmm. That was really good. And then also we've been we made a few white negronis at home with, with what coqui americano. Ah, so I've been on a little coqui kick. I guess. Little coqui kick. Yeah, I don't know. I don't use it. Otherwise, I really gravitate towards it, but those sounded really good, and I was really interested in the Vesper because I feel like you don't often see fat-washed gin, mm. right? You see more like vodka because gin has all yeah. the botanicals. You don't want, yeah. Um, so those were those were the most interesting things. We tried. I had some mediocre beers. Oh. Mediocre beers. So many. Some mediocre beers. Yeah. <laughs> but but the, those are standouts from this week. Cool. Yeah, what about you, Adam? So apart from the the reason we're going to have this conversation today, the other stuff uh, that I had this week. So I um, had this really cool cocktail called Must Be Limon or Must Be Limone okay. at Cook Shop uh, in, in Chelsea. Wow, I haven't thought of that place in a million years. And I had this really delicious aperitif in it called Limone. Uh <laughs> My lemon aperitif. It also had Rocky's botanical liqueur and lemon and club soda. It was really tasty, very light, refreshing. I think lemon is also having a moment right now. Yeah. Everything lemon flavored, so mm-hmm. that was really good. Uh, I had a really good wine that Tim McCurdy recommended. Um, he knew the winemaker really well, uh, but I forget the, what it was called, so it's fine. <laughs> I didn't take a picture. Actually, I you thought so I had a picture, <laughs> but, but instead, but instead, I have a picture of the cider that the Psalm Catherine at Cookshop was cool enough to bring out. Because I felt like whenever a psalm like brings you a, a pour, you'd be like, "Hey, yeah, I like this. Like, I'll take a picture." <laughs> so instead, the picture on my phone is a Baldwin single Friedel <laughs> South Hill cider, which was really good. Cider. Wow, you have something positive to say about cider? This does yeah, not it was method champenois. I enjoyed it. Like it was, pr- it was really dry. It was like, thanks, Catherine. I thought she was awesome too. But uh, she recommended it. To she you. yeah, she brought okay. it out for us. Um, okay, but uh, Tim recommended a really great Portuguese wine. That now I'm an idiot because I. Actually, Tim's going to be listening to this right now and being like, fucka. <laughs> but, you know, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Um, Tim, podcast yeah. at vinepair.com. You can let us know what uh, <laughs> yeah. wine Tim, hit us up, man. Uh, but, that, but that was about it. But the other thing that I had this week, which is what we're going to talk about, is the reason I was at Cook Shop was Tim and I had gone to the release of Patron in La Lique, which is a new – it's the third iteration of – this extremely high-end Patron tequila that is bottled in a um, bottle made by the Lalique Glass Company of France. Crystal, right? It's crystal, yeah. And this one, so every the, they've done three iterations. I think they started it in 2015. They did it every f- two to three years. And 
you know, the design is always different. This one really looks like an agave plant. It has like a green hue to it. It's really beautiful. Um, and it's $7,500 a bottle. Um, so obviously Ooh. we got to have a very small pour of it. Um, it's Añejo, right? It's Yeah, extra Añejo. Mm-hmm. And it had a lot of really rich, nutty, and sherry notes to it. There was tequila in the back end when you actually, you know, swallowed it, had it on your palate. But the front was very much this rich, decadent tequila. And, you know, they were telling us they're basically already sold out of it. Wow. Um, you know, they had, they only made, was it? 299. 299 bottles. Mm-hmm. And only 120, I think, came to the U.S. or something, or 150. Only 20 came to New York. And they're all basically spoken for at this point. And, you know, so clearly there are people that are really interested in this high-end tequila. And so, you know, from that experience, sort of Zach got on the old slack and was like, hey, guys, what do you (laughs) want to talk about this week? Why don't we talk about – and then we sent some ideas and back and forth was like – collectible tequila and it is interesting because you don't see this that much but i think you're going to start seeing more of it yeah and the question becomes like is tequila collectible and will it be as collectible as bourbon and scotch and if so what kind of tequila because i do think in this regard there are different kinds of tequila right so we have obviously when it comes to scotch and bourbon it's scotch or bourbon, then it's just based on the age, right? Mm-hmm. So there's some people that collect 12-year-old, some people that collect 23-year-old, Pappy is Pappy, right? Everyone collects all kinds of Pappy. But tequila has a lot of different variations, right? There are some Blancos that are very rare, right? Will those become collectible and valuable? There are some Reposados that people really treasure and think are really special. And then obviously you have the Añejos and the extra Añejos that sort of start to take on the characteristics of lots of scotch and bourbon, right? Like the longer they sit in wood, the longer they kind of can gain those characteristics, especially when they're aged in things like sherry, old sherry casks and bourbon casks, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So is tequila like the next hot market? Should we be looking at that right now? Should we be buying it? Should we be telling all of our friends like, Hey, the next thing you, you know, get on this before you lose out because it's going to be the next Pappy where people are going to want to hold these or, you know, are the only things that are collectible more of these like high end special releases where like the the reason that they're collectible is because they're there's a finite amount, right? There's mm-hmm. 299 right. of these bottles. That's what makes this collectible, and it makes it as collectible because of the high end glass that it's bottled in. Right. Well, are we seeing allocations with specific bottles of tequila yet? Like yes. Don Julio. Yes. Yeah, we are. One hundred percent. So, I mean, I think to that end, yes, I think we're. We're seeing similar behavior, right? People are trying to buy up those bottles because they're really hard to get. But I think it's going to take us a while to get to a point where people are collecting bottles. Like I I think I think it's going to take us some more time and for for tequila to kind of hit more of a not a tipping point. Yeah. But but, you know, obviously there's like a pretty big issue with tequila right now because the demand for it is so high and we're seeing a lot of brands like cut corners to make tequila to meet the demand Mm -hmm. um, instead of doing it properly. And I think until that become like, until that reaches a tipping point, we're not going to see people investing in, in collections, Mm -hmm. but I think we will eventually. Hmm. Interesting. I think one of the big differentiators in my eyes between tequila's potential for like this kind of collecting and the whiskeys that you mentioned before, Adam, is that, when people started getting interested in collecting bourbon, scotch, et cetera, 
in the last couple of in the last decade, maybe last two decades, there was already an existing supply of aged versions of those spirits mm-hmm. that, that it, yeah. they were out there. They had been produced. In some cases, they had not sold. In some cases, they had been hiding in warehouses for a while, but they had been made. And in tequila, you just have so few examples of anything comparable in that sort of long aged mm-hmm. um, category until relatively recently. So when you see something like the Patron expression that you were discussing, Adam, you're looking at something that was very intentionally made and designed for this specific release. It wasn't a, you know, 20 year long project that someone had undertaken without having any idea what they were doing with it. And then it kind of was like, oh, well, I guess we're going to bottle this and sell it. And, you know, someone could like, like with that bottling, no one's going to be ahead of the curve. Everyone's paying $7,500 a bottle at least. So there's not really like a getting in on the ground floor. And I think with tequila, one of the big things that I'm curious about is unlike with whiskey is generally there is, I think, a real tension for a lot of these producers between producing more Blanco tequila, which is incredibly in demand and putting tequila in barrel for years to produce an extra añejo and whiskey producers don't have that tension right they're they might have to make a decision about when they bottle something off obviously the longer you leave things in barrel both you know the more time you're just spending until it gets to market and you're losing some you know to evaporation and stuff like that but you're not going to make a decision between releasing white dog and releasing an aged whiskey like that's just not a consideration that any distilleries get into and i think tequila producers really have to make a decision because of the the realities of where the market is and even if there is a growing market as i think there is for these aged expressions the market is also very 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 hungry for blanco tequila at all levels and so if you're patron say to use this example again you know you have to kind of make a decision at various points in the production you know, what do you need in market now versus what do you, what can you afford, not so much financially, but just sort of demand wise to put away for three plus years in the hopes that there will be a market for it then. And that that market will, you know, kind of compensate you sufficiently for all the tequila you didn't sell in the interval. Right. And I think that's also something to keep in mind for, like, I could see that happening for the American market specifically. Right. You continue mm-hmm. to make the Blanco because it sells. It's very popular. Well, I guess Blanco and Reposado are popular in Mexico, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what we learned? Yes. Mm-hmm. But in but in the States, like people gravitate towards. So, I mean, Blanco is very popular here, but there is a growing market for Reposado and Añejos because they do taste more like other age spirits right. in the U.S. Like. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that is why like 42 is so successful, things like that, because we like a little bit more wood and, you know, a little bit more roundness, softness, et cetera. That is what I wonder about sort of the world of sort of tequila in general is I, I do wonder if you could ever make Blanco totally collectible. Because it all is made from Blue Weber agave, right? So mm-hmm. you could you could say, well, this is collectible because, look, people collect anything, right? I know a ton of people out there, as we've joked about on this podcast, who are collecting old versions of gin when the recipe changes, right? right? So, like, 
we know that 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 kind of person exists the question is does that have any real value like is that ever going to show up in Sotheby's probably not so like I think that's a place where Blanco could become collectible like hey this is a Blanco that was made at a distillery that doesn't exist anymore or made by a specific master distiller who has now passed away or was made using this specific process that they don't do anymore whatever right Mm -hmm. but the fact that the the source material, the blue Weber agave, does exist in some form or fashion. Yes, it, there's a short you know a shortage. There is less of it than there used to be. They're planting as much as they can. I think that does make the Blanco style hard to place a very you know formal value on. Yeah. Whereas I think with mezcal, actually, there are mezcals that are made from you know because they're foraged. A lot of them mm-hmm. from plants that won't get replanted, et cetera. Some mezcals actually, like when they're released, it's the, the only version of that, of that, you know, Blanco mezcal that will ever exist. Yeah. So those I actually could see having collectible value amongst tequila nerds. Yeah. I do think there is opportunity with the Añejos. The problem is most tequila collectors right now that I know, all of their bottles are open mm-hmm. because they are evangelists for the for the liquid. So they enjoy tequila as well. They're mm-hmm. not speculative investors. We make fun of the taters a lot on this podcast, <laughs> but they the taters don't, or, they, don't drink uh, they don't drink it. Yeah. And that's because this is whatever that's what, you know, bourbon's a really great example of what happens when people think there's a value in an asset and they flood the market. I mean, that's what happened with NFTs and now they're crashing, right? That's what happened with crypto and now it's crashing. Like people think that there's this asset and they can get behind it and get in early and sell, you know, buy low, sell high. And that is what people feel like with bourbon at yeah. this point in time. You know, all the, the reason that, I mean, as a lot of people joke, right? If all the taters that were buying Blanton's actually drank it, a lot of them wouldn't be buying Blanton's. Right. Like Blanton's is a fine bourbon. It's a fine bourbon. It's a good bourbon. But like, is it worth the prices all these people are paying to go get the special, you know, bourbon with their, with the dump date on it for, for someone, you know, no, it's not, you know, it's, it is worth what it actually was originally priced at. Mm -hmm. So therefore I think until that happens in tequila where there's this feeling that there's like a collectability aspect to it. And it doesn't doesn't matter because I think the difference right now is a lot of these really high end tequilas, the liquid in it is also good. And so the people who are buying it want to want to consume it. So you think these Lalique bottles will be drunk from, uh, from everything I understand from talking to the people at the event. Yeah. The ones from the last versions were all consumed, you know, people open them and drink them and enjoy them. I mean, they were talking the, I got to meet the CEO of Lalique in the U S and he and the head of innovation at Patron were telling me the story about, I guess there's a really well-known bar inside Epcot Center that has an incredible tequila selection and that there was this group of guys that came one day and I and they have this thing, if you finish the bottle, you get to keep the bottle. Oh, wow. If you're the one that finishes the bottle of tequila. And so they were just buying each other, it was four of them, rounds of shots of Lalique and it was $450 a shot. Holy shit. Yeah, but but half the bottle was already empty. So they only had to finish half. But the whole thing was that I guess the guys were making this whole game with each other that whoever was the last person to buy the last round got the bottle. Mm-hmm. So they kept, it was almost like they were playing a roulette in some way. Right, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, and they loved the tequila and were enjoying it. And I mean, I think there's a lot of people that will drink this tequila. You know, I heard another story from a guy who was there from at Sotheby's who said that the person who had bought one of the original bottles at auction at Sotheby's, you know, wound up consuming it and then using the bottle for another, you know, another use. So I think 
there will be other tequilas like this. I mean, 1942 is the same. People, it's allocated and it has value and people really want it, but they want it because they want to drink it. Yeah. And so that's where I, I don't think today we're going to see a bunch of bottles at Christie's or Sotheby's, but I do think, as you were saying, Joanna, it's coming. Yeah. I just don't know. I can't predict, like, who the producer will be. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if we've yet identified in tequila or really even have a sense. Now, maybe you do listening out there, dear, dear listener, and you can email us in and let us know. The pappy of tequila. Yeah, I don't think we've identified. I don't even think we have a clue. But then again, they didn't really have a clue in the 90s no. that pappy was going to be what it was going to be. I mean, people tell stories all the time about going to these bourbon festivals, and pappy was right alongside a bunch of other bourbons, and they were just getting poured, and people were sampling it. And then all of a sudden, someone decided it was the holy grail and that there was nothing else like it. And then it, you know, because it already had a really small production it just well, it was, became yeah, this massive it thing it was no longer being produced i mean i think that's so much right what right it comes back to it, you know it's pappy specifically it's it's the story and actually if you guys are interested i would encourage listeners i did an interview with wright thompson who wrote a book uh called pappy land about pappy van winkle and his friendship with julian van winkle and and um the whole story and, and you can tell it's so much of what made pappy a phenomenon was was the tragedy of the story and and without mm-hmm. that like the quality of the liquid was obviously very good but it's it's not it wasn't exclusively that that made the the legend of of Pappy Van Winkle what it is today, and I think that's where the question becomes really curious in in tequila, particularly because you do kind of have this interesting. I mean, it's hard to know what whatever the tequila equivalent of taters will think in a decade <laughs> or two, but like I do think that there's a there's some possibility that some of what we'll being, call them pinas. I was just going to say sure, pinas. exactly perfect. <laughs> the pinas will what they will think. Because again, you know, now it's hard, you know, now the, the, the bourbon speculation market has gotten to what you've described, Adam, where people are, are in there because they think they can make money on it. But what started it was, was the lovers, the people who really were into it, looking for really high quality product that they felt was, yeah. yeah. And, and I just think like so much of the extra Añejo in particular tequila that's being produced is being produced, I don't know how to say this other than like it's very clearly being produced because there's a belief in the demand for it that's either exists or will exist. Yeah. And it doesn't have I don't think it has a lot of romance to it. I mean, this, the, the league is interesting. It's this kind of but it's like this ultra luxury product in a way that like those bourbons that were being collected are not thought. I mean, now they might be viewed as ultra luxury products, but they were not made that way. That was not the intention behind them when they were aged and bottled and, and first put on market. And what I find fascinating about tequila is we've kind of gotten to this in a couple of different ways, but I want to mention it again, is there is a real tension in the tequila loving community between the kind of person who sees possibly like a single field, possibly, I don't know, single vintage or single year Blanco tequila as the highest expression of agave mm-hmm. or, or yeah. you know, or if you're expanding to mezcal and things like that, you know, one wild species that only can be cultivated after it's 40 years old, you know, and those are the bottles that are fetching hundreds of dollars, you know, uh, retail these days versus, and I do think it's kind of versus the people for whom these heavily wood influenced tequilas are the Holy grail and bourbon whiskey. They don't have that same tension. Again, to come back to what I said before, there's no one out here claiming that actually the truest expression of bourbon is white dog. Like no one believes Mm -hmm. that. No one would claim that. Yes, you get a little bit of disagreement about whether it's with bourbon or scotch or whatever, you know, kind of do people prefer it at 10 years or 12 or 18 or 23 or whatever. And and there are reasons to 
to disagree or to have a personal preference. But in the end, no one is really saying that the the ideal expression is some unaged or barely aged mm-hmm. version. And in Tequila, I think you very legitimately and very honestly get people who would contend that the proper highest expression of agave as a distillate is in these unaged forms. And that I think yeah. could perhaps I agree with that. Like yeah. well and I, I kind of do too, but I do think it could create a problem in some sense for the collectability of the category at the highest level because people who are buying in, the person who's in the end, the person who's gonna buy and and presumably consume that bottle, they want to believe that they're getting the best of the best of the best, right? Like we see this, this is one of the things that happened to these high-end bourbons when they were on bar and restaurant lists is people bought it because they wanted, you know, they wanted to show off for their bodies. That's sort of the story you told about people at Epcot, or they just, they wanted to believe this is the fine, like I love bourbon and I want to have the best bourbon I can have. And tequila, I think is going to have a harder time offering that because of this tension. Well, but let me play devil's advocate here. Please. Because... I think you're right if the argument is that it's you and I and Joanna, who I'm just saying we all basically as tequila lovers and who love Blanco are the ones who decide to to, to make tequila this collectible market. Because then I think this theory totally holds up, right? It's going to be very hard. There's going to be a tension. But if what happens is which is, this is another prediction I've heard, right? Aaron Goldfarb has made this prediction in in sort of, and so is Tim, others who cover more of the bourbon market than we do in the world of 1942 and why it's exploded. If it's the bourbon people who are running out of other stuff to collect. Yeah, I think there are, this will split two different ways. Yes. For the tequila lovers, the piñas, and then for the taters. And the taters are the ones that are actually going to, like, inflate the market because a lot of these tequilas that are really, really aged, and the reason there's a tension there, tastes a lot like really, really aged bourbon. Yes, there is at the at the very end of a lot of these, you still have some of the agave characteristic, but there is a lot more of that wood and influence, especially if it's been aged in a bourbon barrel. Right, sweetness. Yeah, yeah. there's the sweetness. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have, if you're a big scotch lover, I mean, the thing about the Lalique that was so interesting to me, Zach, mm-hmm. And I've already told this to Joanna was like when I smelled it, it smelled a lot like Macallan. Yeah, well, not smoky, would. right? Because the sherry yeah. and and Macallan also is incredibly collectible. Sure. And that's what I wonder is if these really high end tequilas, of which I think we're going to continue to see more, are actually going to be collected by not true, you know, tequila evangelists and lovers, but. Just collectors in general who are were already collecting bourbon are looking for something else, and they see the value in tequila. Yes. Yeah, and they see and they un, and they and they equate also value with age, right? Right, because they've already gotten used to that. And there's going to be some producer who's going to put out a super aged tequila. You know, it's coming, oh, right? Yeah. Like I, Lalique hasn't said how old the tequila is inside. They just say it's an extra añejo. But you know, someone I don't unless it's not legal, right? So someone correct me if you can't actually say how old the tequila is in in the bottle. But if if you can, you can totally see someone being like, "This is an 18 year old," mm-hmm. and all of a sudden it becomes something that become is very, very sought after by that group of consumers who think that's what makes a good liquid. And like my hot take that I've you know chatted with Tim about a lot is I actually think for most liquids, the old stuff kind of sucks. Like uh, it, because lo- it, it starts to kind of die. Mm. Like it loses a lot of characteristics. Not for like there. I'm not talking about old wines. I'm talking about spirits. It really takes on just like when I've had really old scotches mm-hmm. or really old bourbons, like 
the 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 vivacity of the liquid is gone. Mm. Like a lot of the stuff that really makes it all the different fruit notes, etc. It's all gone. It's all basically raisins and and wood and chocolate. And I get that that might be interesting to some people because it just tastes quote unquote smooth, but it's not an exciting liquid anymore. They kind of die because they just sat in the wood for so long. And so for me, I've, I've often wondered like, what is the point of these besides the fact that they're just collectible? Cause there's nothing delicious about them. Um, just in terms of extra age spirits in general, extra añejos usually are only like four or five years old, right. which yeah. is different, right? It's like this Lalique was still very alive, yeah. but for the most part, some of these really old bourbons I've gotten to have are really old scotches. I, I kind of don't get it. Well, it's true that I think whether it, whether you're talking about long aged uh, spirits in, you know, spirits that are aged for a long time in wood, or even I actually have felt this way about old, really old wines. There is a way in which all of them do kind of converge on the same basic like flavor point and it kind of robs them of what made them distinctive and unique when they were younger in that i agree that it's it's sort of odd to think about that you could taste you know very aged expressions of all these different spirits and say like well in the end they kind of all taste pretty much the same not maybe absolutely identical but they have a very similar flavor profile because Mm -hmm. as you mentioned adam like at that point the dominant flavor influencer on them is the oak that they were aged in mm-hmm. and maybe yeah. the finish of it or whatever. But I think that, that that's exactly what we're seeing, right? We're seeing a bunch of people gambling or betting, I guess is a better way to put it, whether they're producers, collectors, whomever, that what made aged bourbon so popular was, I mean, sure, it's bourbon. People know bourbon is, have, have associate quality with bourbon, but they associate quality with tequila as well. They associate quality with cognac as well. And if they can make their product taste basically the same which they can Mm -hmm. they're going to find a market i mean again that's that's what we're seeing i don't know that it's going to be the market that's going to blow up the way that bourbon has blown up at the very highest ends again it's hard to know and without without some of the history and authenticity in that specific category of those spirits i'm not sure that they will have the same like market upside but it wouldn't shock me if they did because you know in the end people People are drawn to that flavor profile. They they associate age with quality, and mm-hmm. they, if nothing else, believe that they can find someone else to sell the bottle to. Yeah, I was going to say to your earlier point, Adam, I think a lot of people who collect things like this for those reasons don't drink the bottle, yeah. don't actually drink it. No, they don't. And look, I mean, I think, you know, there, there are there's so many other examples of of this in spirits where people collect stuff because it's rare, whether it's what it was bottled in. And, and oftentimes what makes it rare is either the age or what it was bottled in. Yeah. Right. And I mean, we have this crazy uh, story on the website from Aaron about Pappy Van Winkle bottles, hand painted Pappy Van Winkle bottles, right? Having higher age. Right. Yeah. yeah. Being worth even more because it has this painting on it that no one else yeah. has. I mean, it's, you know, but like, uh, I think it's Woodford for a very long time has done the Baccarat bottle. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's also ex- insanely expensive yep. uh, and very collectible. And, lo- and every year or every few years when they release, it's a different version, new design, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that's what I thought was interesting, too, just to take it back to the, to the origin. When I was, you know, at the event, I asked, you know, who were the customers? And basically what I was told is they've kind of realized for this specific release 
it's about 50-50 Patron diehards, people who love Patron, and people who love Lalique. Hmm. Because this is, remember, there's only 299 of this Lalique bottle. And Lalique has been collected and sold on auction on the auction market for decades Mm -hmm. and it's just as rare right the bottle is just as rare and i thought that was really really interesting i think we'll see more things like this yeah for sure totally more collaborations but also more like you said limited edition yeah stuff Yeah, yeah stuff and uh and there will be a market for it. And there, there always, always is. There always is. <laughs> yeah. Well, on that note, let us know what you think. Hit us up at podcast at vinepair.com. We've been getting a lot of really amazing emails. Always really appreciate it. And I will talk to you both Friday. Talk to you then. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vinepair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vinepair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my Vinepair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, Vinepair's tasting director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the Vinepair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.